0: So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. Information in the form of energy streams in in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. All the dangers which you have feared are unnecessary productions of your own mind. Whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is your mind which creates them.
1: About your world.
0: Stay tuned. My guest is Peter Russell. He has degrees in theoretical physics, psychology, and computer science from the University of Cambridge, where he studied with Stephen Hawking. He studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India, and he's the author of From Science to God and Global Brain in which he predicted the internet and the impact it would have on humanity. And his latest book that we'll be talking about is Letting Go of Nothing. Relax your mind and discover the wonder of your true nature. So Peter, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be with you. Looking forward to it.
0: Yes, me too. So first off, I really, really enjoyed this book. It's so clear and to the point. And I also particularly appreciated the etymological derivations and definitions that you go into of some of the terms that are often inaccurately translated or or just not really well understood. So you begin the book by stating that the ego doesn't really exist. And of course, this is one of our... (laughs) of humanity's perennial problems or issues to deal with, could you explain how you see the ego and what you mean by letting go of nothing?
1: Exactly. Okay. Yes. Both saying there's no such thing as ego is deliberately provocative, and so is the title, Letting Go of Nothing. In terms of, let's take the ego first, Actually, what I'm talking about here is not the idea of a you know, healthy ego that psychologists talk about, which is a sense of you know, self-worth that helps us relate to the world and our relationships. What I'm talking about is what we often call egoism, which is that self-centeredness, where we're looking after ourselves often at the expense of others, what we call egotistical thinking. And the point is that if I look inside myself, I don't find a thing called an ego. What I find is, I find there's this sense of me, this I that's always there, that is aware of my experience. And along with this, I find, if you like, egocentric thinking. I find thoughts that are egocentric about myself and what I want and what I need, etc. Maybe feelings, emotions, which are sort of egocentric. So it's actually a way of thinking. It's a mindset. So what we call ego is actually what psychologists call a mindset. It's like the lens through which we see the world. And so letting go of ego is about actually letting go of not a thing. or It's not something we have to conquer in ourselves or something we have to defeat or get rid of. It's a way of thinking we need to step out of. And so because it's just a way of thinking, it's just a mindset of how we see things, it's not actually a thing. And so that's where the title comes in, Letting Go of Nothing, is a sort of twist in words. It's letting go of no thing. We're not letting go of things. And I apply this to various things in the book. But certainly the ego, we're not letting go of a thing. We're letting go of just a way of seeing. And the way of seeing is not a thing in itself. So that's why I call the book Letting Go of Nothing. We're letting go of mindsets. We're letting go of our attachment, our way of seeing things.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's a great line from the book that I think you repeat at least once, and that is, clinging to our ideas of how things should be causes suffering and keeps us apart from our true nature. Could you explain that and also how that works?
1: Yes. So most of our attachments are actually clinging to our ideas of how we think things should be for us to be happy. Um, what I point out earlier on in the book is, you know, beneath everything beneath everything we do, everything we want, ultimately, when you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, why do you want this, why do you want that? What it comes down to is what we're looking for is a better state of mind. We're looking to feel better, whether we call it happiness, peace of mind, joy, contentment, whatever. We're looking for something inward, we're looking for a better state of mind. Now, when we cling to our ideas of how things should be for us to be happy, then that clinging leads to discontent. We so oh, things aren't right now, I need to change this, or I wish this weren't so, or I'd done wrong in the past, or even the opposite, I really hope this is gonna to happen tomorrow. All of this leads to, first of all, unnecessary thinking, but a lot of that thinking is actually one of discontent. So we're not actually happy with things. We're discontent. And discontent, we talk about you know going into the etymology in terms of suffering, how it's referred to in, in Buddhist teachings, the word is dukkha, which actually means, when you look at the root of it, it means not being content. So by our attachment to how we want things to be, we're actually creating discontent in ourselves. And that's the suffering I equate with discontent. The discontent then obviously displaces the natural contentment. So if we're discontent about how things should be in the future, we're depriving ourselves of the ability to actually be content in the present.
0: So there's a kind of qualitative distinction between those terms, suffering and discontent, which I think is, is kind of important in all of this.
1: Yes. Yes, because usually when we think of suffering, we're thinking of, you know, sort of abject suffering, intense pain or real difficult emotional situations or or other things. We think of suffering as a really, you know, it's an awful state to be in. And that's the way we use it in common parlance. So I'm just saying that the way it actually means when you go, go to the, you know, roots of the words, it actually means something much broader. It means not being at ease, not being content. So what I'm showing is, you know, that's something we all experience. We may not experience suffering in the that really awful sense of suffering, but I think most of the time, most of us feel discontent in some way or other. Even even if it's about the weather, you know, we're oh, I wish it weren't this, I wish it weren't that, or something. So we're we're actually creating discontent for ourselves. So in that sense, we're creating mental suffering for ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's pretty ironic because. We have been creating all these ways of greater comfort and convenience in our world, and yet our minds are still creating discontent and suffering. And you you have this wonderful quote from Mark Twain saying, I am an old man, and I have known a great many troubles, but most never happened.
1: Yes, I think that's something most people can probably relate to, you know. I just had one the other day where I was about to have a meeting with somebody and there's a difficult subject we had to touch upon and talk about. And so in my mind, I was going through: well, what if he said that? And what should I say? And should I do this? And how should I best? I don't know how much time and energy I spent planning how to handle this meeting. And when it came to it, the whole thing got diffused and it worked out totally differently. And I think we all do that at times. We're just worrying about what to do, what to think. And it's unnecessary. We're sort of solving problems in our mind that never actually exist. And so, this is part about creating discontent. If I look at myself, sort of probably, you know, 80, 90% of the thoughts I have aren't really necessary. A lot of them are repeats, anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. And you say that in the end, everything we do and have strived for throughout our evolution has been to return to our natural or essential state.
1: Yes, yes. And by this I don't mean anything highfalutin, just that when things are okay in our world, when we're you know, well-fed, we're not suffering in some way where there's no threats, uh, needs are satisfied, if things are okay in our world outside, we feel okay inside. It's a completely natural thing. It's like, We just feel at peace. We feel content. So what I'm saying is contentment is our natural state of mind. And most of the time, because we're creating discontent or busy doing things or focusing on things, we're not in that natural state of contentment. So what I call natural mind is not an amazing state we have to achieve. It's just how we feel when we let go of our worry, our anxiety and all of that. That's what I mean by natural mind. And it's something we all know. You know, we all know, you know, classic example, you know, at the end of the day, we've got nothing to worry about. We're sitting watching a sunset or whatever, listening to the birds or something else. We just feel at ease. We feel content. We just come back to our natural state of mind.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And often we don't realize how significant that really is.
1: Right. Because when we come back to that, we, we feel at ease, and so much of the time in our life, you know, we're creating tensions and things, and those tensions, they're mental tensions, but also bodily tensions, and they can accumulate. And I think we all know that, how we get wound up and maybe fatigued, whatever. The more we can just come back to this, this natural state of mind, the more we can do that, the more we can begin to relax, the more the mind can relax, we can let go of some of the tensions, and that, I think we all know, is really important. Just not only that we feel better, but I think the more we can do that, the better it is for our health, for our mental clarity, our creativity. All these things, I think, are enhanced by being able to come back to a state of quiet rather than be caught up in angry emotions or tension or whatever. So it, I find it really useful. Every time I do that, it just feels... The feeling for me is, ah, yes, okay, here I am. I was caught up in that, worrying about that, and coming back to, ah, here I am, yes. It's a nice feeling, and it's something I think we we all long for deep down. That's what we're looking for in everything we do, is how can we come back to feeling at ease, feeling content. So that's why I say, you know, behind everything, we're looking to come back to this natural state of contentment, natural mind just to follow up on something you said earlier, in terms of our society, you know, we have so many things, so many opportunities to do things. And all of that, in a way, fuels that discontent. If you look at advertising, just about every single advertisement you see is saying, you can't be happy as you are, you're missing something, you lack something, buy this product, buy this service, and you will feel better. So what they're doing very subtly is they're fueling Discontent—they're making you feel there's something missing. They don't say you are wonderful as you are. They say no, you're not. You need something. So our society is continually sort of in conspiracy against feeling this natural contentment. They're always persuading us we need something in order to get it.
0: Mm-hmm. And we can actually make a practice of remembering to return to that natural state of mind.
1: Yes, one of the things that I do personally and I suggest to others in the book it's a very very simple practice it's what I call just pause, by which I mean just pausing, nothing else it's pausing what we're doing but it's more than that, it's pausing what we're thinking, pausing the mind and so it's something you know we can do you know between tending to our emails and going making a cup of coffee or something, we're already paused what we're doing, we're not actually engaged in something and so just to take just a few seconds That's all it needs. It can be longer. Just a few seconds to notice what you're thinking because there's nearly always something you're thinking, oh, what do I need to do next? I must remember to do this or whatever it is. There's some thought going on. Just to make the choice to not follow that thought any further for the moment. And that is a choice we actually have. We can choose right now, I'm going to let that thought go. I'm not going to follow it any further. And in doing that, we just drop back that little bit closer to our own self, to natural mind, and just notice how that feels in the moment. And what often happens for me is when I do that, it's like suddenly I notice, ah, there's the sound of the wind, the birds, the trees, or even the refrigerator. You know, I just notice the present moment there, which I hadn't been noticing before. And maybe even I notice subtler thoughts in the background, but just choosing not to follow them either. And just by doing that, we just allow ourselves, we allow the mind to settle down towards that state of quietness and stillness and savor that, just to say, ah, yes, yes, this does feel good just to pause the thinking for a short time. It'll come back again. It's not about getting rid of the thinking. It's just pausing it for a short time, savoring at how it feels. And that becomes not only something that's enjoyable, it becomes a... A reinforcement is a reminder. Ah, yes, when I pause, I feel better. And as we do that, we're building up a habit, if you like, of just stepping back from what we're doing as often as we can during the day. I actually leave little notes around the house just saying pause. So when I come across them, like I've got one on the staircase walking up, I just pause for a few seconds. It's like, ah, yes, ah, yes. I have to move the notes around, I should say, because after a couple of days, I habituate to them and I know where they are. But it just helps me remind us, just pause, just pause.
0: hmm So getting back to this thing of letting go of nothing or letting go, you actually write about some of the nuances of that in terms of you have letting go, letting things be the way they are, and also letting in. Could you talk about some of those distinctions?
1: Yes, yes. Normally, when people talk about letting go, you know, say, oh, I must, you know, I I need to let go of this, whatever it is, financial situation or worry or emotion, whatever it is. We think of letting go as getting rid of something. And, yes, in a way, we're looking to be free of it. But often we think of letting go in terms of being free of it is like, giving it away, either pushing it to the back of our mind or changing things. What i found in my life, this was really the whole reason I wrote the book, is that the opposite actually works better. And by the opposite, I mean, instead of trying to get rid of something, I find the first stage in letting go of something is to do the opposite. It sounds you know, paradoxical, unconventional, but the first stage is to actually let it in. And by this, I mean, let in, the experience that's going on that you want to be free of. So supposing, you know, you're feeling angry, at and you say, I wish I could let go of this anger. Instead of just trying to, you know, change your thinking or whatever it is, the first thing I suggest to people is to let in what's going on. And with an emotion, there's always two things going on, two general things with an emotion. First of all, there's a feeling in the body, somewhere in the body, there's some sensation or other. With anger, it's probably quite obvious. You may notice your teeth clenched, your fists, you know, tight, or, you know, that sort of wanting to move. Because with any emotion, there's what psychologists call an action tendency. That there's something in the emotion that wants you to do something in some way or another. Even if it's like with shame, you want to go and hide away, but there's still that action tendency to do something. And so that's there in the body. So I suggest the first thing you do is just you know, be quiet, notice your body, notice what feelings are there. And often there's things we haven't really noticed, like, oh, I see There's this in my stomach here, or there's something going on in my shoulders, whatever it is. So you let that in. And then rather than trying to change it, just to allow it to be there. Say, okay, this is what's happening in my body. I've let it in. And just allow it to be there. And when we do that, we often find, Things begin to relax at their own accord and the letting go begins to happen on its own. So we don't too much do letting go, but we're creating the right, if you like, mental environment that it begins to happen. And the other side of an emotion is that there's always some story there. And by story, I mean something we are telling ourselves. So with anger, it may be this person behave badly basically this person or whatever it was didn't turn out didn't behave the way i wanted them to for me to be happy they are somehow getting in the way of my ability to be content and so to let the story in to notice what am i telling myself what am i really saying to myself about this situation and then to you know let it be there but also to to look at it. So if you're, say, take the case of anger, if you're angry at somebody and you begin to see the story, you know, what it is you're angry about. Well, this person didn't do this when I wanted them to, and that really got in the way. And normally behind that, you'll notice the phrase, they should have done it differently. They should have done it differently. It's usually part of the story. And then you can start asking yourselves, well, hang on, you know, what was going on in their mind? How are they feeling? You know, maybe they had a bad night last night. Who knows? Or, you know, maybe it's something from way back in their childhood that got triggered or whatever. We've no idea. But if you start putting yourself in the other person's shoes, you begin to realize in a way they were just, you know, trying to do the best they could in a difficult situation or whatever it was. And so the more you do that, the more you begin to let go of your fixated story about what they did wrong. And as you begin to let the story soften, again, the letting go can begin to happen. It begins to happen on its own.
0: Mm-hmm. And talk about dealing with resistance that arises within us and how we can go about letting go of resistance or or letting it be. Yes,
1: thank you. This is a really important point, which is a subtler point in it all. So if you're feeling some. Uncom- I call it uncomfortable emotions, things we'd rather be free of that aren't really necessary. Because just to say, you know, a lot of our emotions, they're very valid and that they help us in some way or another. But there's times we want to get rid of emotions and we often push it to the back of our mind where we feel safe. Like if it's anger, if I push it away, I'll do that because I'm scared I might go punch somebody. Or if I'm feeling sad, I might push it away because I thought it suddenly burst out in tears in public. So when we're pushing things away, what we're doing is we're resisting. We're resisting them in some way or another. And, you know, what people tend to do is try to push through that resistance. But I see there's two things going on here. One there's the uncomfortable emotion. So supposing it's sadness. There's something there, you know, comfortable emotion. And the second thing is the resistance not wanting to experience it. So what I found is, in terms of working with the sadness, the first thing we have to do is let go of the resistance to experiencing it. And so here the same principle applies, is to, first of all, to not try and deal with the sadness itself, whatever it is, but to notice how it feels to be resisting it. And again, there's signs in the body, I know for me, if I'm resisting something, it's almost a sense of tightness, like a tightness in the chest or something. So if we can apply this principle of letting in and letting be to the resistance itself, then when we do that, the resistance begins to soften and subside. And when the resistance begins to go away, begins to get less, begins to dissolve, then we can begin to explore the emotion itself. So I find this a really crucial step, this unusual step, is not normally done, but a really crucial step, first of all, is to notice the resistance, notice how it feels to be resisting. And then, when we've let that go, we can then come to being with, you know, working with the actual experience itself, letting go of the sadness in this case, whatever it is, or the anger.
0: So what you're talking about is cultivating very practical ways of being present with things as they rise within us
1: yes being present to stuff that we're not normally so present to i mean you know we can probably all be present in terms of just you know sitting down and observing what's going on in the moment but it's are more subtle things that we're not normally so present to but you're right it all comes back in the end to coming back to the present moment in one way or another it's like what Ram Dass said, be here now, it's like coming back to being here in the present moment. And the present moment, if we come back to the present moment, to our actual experience, there's nearly always a quality of ease and rest to it. In fact, as I mentioned in the book, it's very hard to feel an emotion without some thought about the past or the future. I just suggest to people, you know, try to feel whatever it is, try to feel anger, shame, frustration, sadness, or even sort of excitement, hope and those things without thinking about the past or the future. It's very difficult without the thought. It isn't there. So the more we can come back to the present, the more we can just come back to ourselves without that overlay of unnecessary emotions and tension. It's something I think all all traditions point to in some way or another is, how do we just come back to the present? But also I'd like to point out there, it's not a question of staying present. I see in some, you know, meditation circles, people sort of close their eyes and they try to be present and try to stay present. My attitude is we can't stay present. Thought's are gonna keep on bubbling up. It's just the nature of the mind. The skill is learning how to return to the present at will, as often as we like. And that's where I find that pause technique I mentioned earlier is really useful. It's developing the skill of coming back to the present, but not trying to stay there, not trying to hold on to it.
0: Yeah, and there's this counterintuitive nature to the notion of, like, not resisting our resistance.
1: Yes, yes. And that's really what I was, you know, mentioning before, when there is resistance, We don't let the resistance in. And so not resisting resistance is about allowing ourselves to experience the resistance rather than even pushing the resistance out to the edge of our mind. So it's about accepting the resistance that's there and then exploring it, noticing what it's like, noticing how it feels, rather than resisting it, pushing it away.
0: Right. Giving ourselves the space to be curious about it rather than just indulging in that knee-jerk, response of pushing it away right. and defending ourselves from uncomfortable feelings
1: right and i'm glad you mentioned that curiosity i think is a really important attitude in all this because it opens us up to noticing what's there so when i was talking about you know with an emotion or with resistance being curious being curious to say what's it actually feel like so what's it actually feel like when i'm resisting or if it's anger What's it actually feel like? Not to assume, oh, when I'm angry, I feel, you know, tense. I feel, you know, clenched fist or something. That's just an assumption. But just to be curious, actually, what's really going on? What's really there? So being interested in it. And the more we can do that in a very open way, the more we begin to discover things, and the more we begin to notice and let in, the easier it becomes for the natural process of letting go to happen.
0: Right, and if we can do that, you know, in a kind of classic scientific way where we're not, like, really pushing for the answer immediately, we're we're really staying present in that state of wonder and curiosity to allow the actual circumstances and whatever is going on to kind of reveal what it has in store. You know,
1: exactly exactly yes it begins to reveal itself we don't have to go looking for it it's like not trying to find it but just being curious this very open-minded attitude it's like a question i like to ask in that respect for myself is is there something here i haven't noticed so in my turning into you know feeling what's going on in my body rather than sort of looking around, oh, yes, there's this tension there, there's that there, or something else, or I feel, you know, whatever it is. But just to be totally open and just to pose that question, is there something else I haven't noticed? And if there is, it'll probably reveal itself. Oh, I see, you know, I've got, you know, my feet are feeling, you know, a bit tense or so, whatever it is. But just to ask that question in a very open, curious way, just like, What else is going on? Is it something I haven't noticed? And often things just begin to show up in the normal way I wouldn't have noticed. And all of that is really helpful in the letting go process.
0: And children are so good at that because they don't approach things with the sense that they know anything about it.
1: Yes, yes. Could we all be as innocent as little children? Yes, they are. (laughs) (laughs) They're much less serious about things. I mean I was watching some kids play a couple of nights ago. It's like, oh dear, how we've lost that sense of ease and play and fun and not caring. We get so serious by our society. And we have this almost unwritten rule in society, you know, the harder you try, the better you'll succeed. And often I think it's our trying too hard that gets in the way of our really feeling okay in ourselves. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Could you talk about your approach to what you call prayer and what that means to you?
1: Yes. I use the word in a different way than conventionally. Conventionally when we, you know, people talk about prayer, we're thinking of, you know, requesting some higher being, deity, divinity or the cosmos or whatever it is. We're praying to something outside of ourselves usually to intervene in the world in some way and make things better whether we're praying for the healing of a friend or praying for something good in our life or praying for forgiveness whatever it is we're praying to something outside of ourselves looking for requesting some change in the world it's like i can't do this myself so please help me you know, create the change I want to see in the world. Now, the way I look at it is that the intervention I need very often is not in the world. The intervention is in my mind. I got stuck in a way of seeing things. That's where I often need the intervention, is a mental intervention rather than a physical intervention. And so the way I frame it for myself, it comes back to another version of that question, is there something I haven't noticed? I pose this question, is there another way of seeing this? Because we said right at the beginning, part of where we get caught up is we get attached to a certain way of seeing things, a certain mindset. So what I'll do is I'll just settle down, be quiet, and then just pose the question, is there, and again, without looking for it, just is there possibly, who knows, that sort of attitude, another way of seeing this, another way of looking at this. And what often happens, not always, but, you know, it's always worth asking. What often happens is another way of seeing it comes to me. I don't work it out or anything, but another way of seeing comes to me. And an example, in fact, I start the book off with is when I first started playing with this several years ago, many years ago, actually now, I was having a difficult time with my partner at the time. We'd been in disagreement over something for a couple of days and you know how it is. It crops up in any relationship from time to time. There's a tension and I was feeling you know, she needs to change. She needs to change her views. She needed to change and she no doubt was feeling I needed to change. And we weren't fighting. With anything. But it was just that tension in the air. You know that is that sort of tension in the air because there's a little stuff going on. And then I was sitting at my desk, just working on something else. And it just occurred to me to ask, very simply, is there another way of seeing this? And it was fascinating. Almost instantly. I mean, it was like within a second or so. It was so quick. That's what amazed me most of all. It was so quick. It was there just waiting. Instantly, it was like, here is another human being with her stuff, you know, her whatever it is, beliefs and things, navigating her way through the world, dealing with me and you know how I am. And instantly it was just everything shifted. It's like suddenly there was compassion. The love had returned. It was like we we'd been out of love for two days. Suddenly the love was back for me. And I felt at ease. There was a sense of relief, feeling at ease. And also this sense of, truth about it was a sense of obviousness it's like why hadn't i seen this before why had not i seen this for two days and of course the answer is i was so stuck in my attachment to how things should be i was so stuck in my view of how things should be i couldn't see the obvious and so i found this time and again when i am in a difficult situation just to pause and then just ask is there another way of seeing this with the attitude of You know, is there perhaps, who knows, another way of seeing this? And waiting, and just waiting. It doesn't always come, you know, instantly like that. Sometimes it comes later. Sometimes nothing happens. But, you know, if it works 50% of the time, that's great. It's always worth asking. And so this is what I call prayer. And the difference is I'm praying to myself, really. I'm praying to my own inner knowing, my own inner wisdom, which has got blocked out by all my... Concern, worry, thinking, whatever it is, it's blocking my own inner wisdom. So I'm actually praying to my own self, to my own inner knowing, and allowing that to come through. And that's where the intervention comes. It it intervenes in my thinking that I've got stuck in, that I've got caught up in, and frees me from that. And that's how I relate to prayer. Not to say that you know other forms of prayer aren't equally valuable, etc. Again, I'm often sort of making slightly provocative statements in order to bring a point home.
0: Yes, and that leads into the inquiry into the question of, who am I?
1: Yes. This is a perennial question. You find it in many different philosophies, teachings, etc. Now, when you first ask a person, who am I, if a person you know, isn't familiar with this sort of approach, the answers will come up you know if it was me i am peter russell i am british i am an author i am male i have degrees in this subject i'm somebody of this particular political leaning etc 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 i could go on for hours defining myself but this is all like my personal self i'm defining who i am in the world what i do how other people see me but the question who am i when it's you know applied more in a sort of spiritual way, it has a very different intent. It's really asking, what do I mean by I? What is this sense of I that's always there? Because although, you know, my personality may change, you know, what I do may change, all of that personal stuff can change over time. But there is this ever-present quality of I-ness. I call it me The I that is experiencing this moment, the I that is listening to you, that is, you know, noticing what's going on, is the same I that was there yesterday, even though my mood may have been different yesterday, it's the same I that was there 10 years ago. You know, it was there in my childhood when I was a very different person than I am now. But it's that sense of I that is always there. It's the I that is... Experiencing the world. It is the eye that is knowing this feeling, the eye that knows what I'm thinking, the eye that knows what I'm looking at. So, the question, who am I? I like to phrase it in a couple of different ways. One is, first of all, instead of who am I, it's to say, what am I? Because it takes away this sort of personal identity. It's like, what do I mean by I? What do I mean by I? What is the word I actually pointing to? And we use it. I don't know how many times a day I say I. But but what I am meaning is there again. What do we mean when we use the word I? What what is it pointing to? Because it's not something we can easily define, but it's something we sort of turn within and look at and look for. And it doesn't have any form. It's not the Peter Russell author blah, blah, blah I. It's this ever-present sense of being which, which never changes. And So the question is almost an inner exploration. And it's not coming up with an answer. It's not coming up, oh, this is what it is. It's actually the opposite. It's just noticing something that's already there, becoming more and more familiar with this inner sense of presence of myself. And I think this is really valuable for people. You know, you find it throughout history, above the temple in Greece, the oracle was written, the words, know thyself, know what we mean by I, because if we're just identified with that personal I, then so much of what we do in the world is done to reinforce that or bolster it. I mean, if I feel, okay, let's take, you know, I have an identity with being an author and somebody says, oh, that book wasn't very good. You know, yeah, you were off track there. They criticize me. I can very well sort of feel upset and I might respond with you know, some judgment or something. If I'm reacting from that personal eye, I get too caught up in my thinking and emotions. But if there's that sense of beingness that is there, and I know that what I truly am is just this deep sense of being, then if someone criticizes me, I don't feel the need so much to reinforce this personal sense of self. So in a way, I'm much freer in the world are much freer to respond according to the situation at hand and it's what's sometimes called spontaneous right action so rather than responding from thinking things out and working out what do i need it's coming from just my inner being so it's a freedom it really frees us up in the world if we can just be more in touch with this deeper sense of being and I say, i think almost all teachings philosophies about this are all pointing to recognizing this. And the second way I sometimes ask the question is to drop the who or the what completely and just phrase the question, am I, to people, just are you. If you phrase the question, am I, then the answer is always yes, of course, I am. And that's what it's pointing to is just this experience of I am, not I am anything, but just I am, here I am. And when we pause in that moment of pausing and we come back, let go of our thoughts for a moment, I always come back to the sense, ah, yes, here I am. Here's the I am. It's like I am coming home to myself.
0: Yeah. And you also write about consciousness and thoughts and thoughts as movement in our field of knowing, like waves on an ocean.
1: Yes, yes. I was getting a bit more sort of philosophical in that part of the book. It's really the question of what are thought's made of, you know. And if we look carefully, you know, when I have a thought, there may be some words going through my mind, some images going through my mind, whatever it is. And it's all appearing in consciousness. It's all appearing in awareness. And so what I see is, we can divide consciousness up into two areas. There's the fact of being conscious, which we all know is the one thing we actually know for sure is I am aware. What I am aware of is different from what you are aware of. And I may you know, question what I'm aware of, but the fact I am aware is absolutely true for all of us. And then there is what we are aware of. And what we are aware of is what I call the ripples in consciousness. It's like activity in consciousness. So if I'm aware of a thought, what I'm aware of, as I said, is, you know, maybe a voice in my head telling me something or some image. This is like the movement of consciousness. This is the form this is the form it is taking. And it's just an activity going on in the mind. And so the analogy with water, with waves on an ocean, is when we see a wave, you know, we think of the wave as a thing. But actually, that's just a way of looking at it. What's actually happening is just an activity in water. It's just an activity happening in the water. The water is the same. The water itself isn't affected by being a wave. It's just an activity of the water, which we then see as a wave. And I suggest it's the same thing in the mind being conscious, the consciousness itself doesn't change. Just the fact we are conscious, that's just like water. That's just the background. And then what we are aware of is the ways or like the ripples, what I call the ripples of knowing. I call it the ripples of knowing. And so it's the activity, it's the activity of consciousness that we're aware of. So that's where the analogy comes. And I call them ripples of knowing because what, we actually, what does consciousness actually mean? And again, this is why I go back to the etymology, which I love doing. Consciousness is consciousness. When we add N-E-S-S to a word, we're usually taking an adjective and making a general noun to talk about it. And if you look in the dictionary, N-E-S-S means the state or quality of. So, you know, we could talk about happiness, it's the state or quality of being happy. Being happy is something, you know, we all know what the experience of being happy is. Happiness doesn't actually exist as a thing. It's just a way of talking about it. And so I suggest the same with consciousness. Consciousness doesn't exist as a thing in the world. It's the state or quality of being conscious. And that's what we all know. And the word conscious, if you go back to Latin, means with knowing. With knowing. Con is with, skios is to know. So with knowing. So in that section of the book, I point out that when we talk about consciousness, what do we really mean? And I call it a field of knowing. That's the best way I find to describe it in words. Words begin to fail us here, but I find the best way to describe it, there is a field of knowing. And in that field of knowing, there is activity, and the activity is what we experience, whether it's what I'm seeing outside, my thoughts, my feelings, whatever it is, my sense of my body, this is all activity in the field of knowing. It is all ripples in the field of knowing. I know it's a bit obtuse.
0: No, I like that. Okay. I like that, and that also leads right into the question you pose of where am I?
1: Yes, this goes from the who am I to where am I? And that may sound a silly question. You know, where am I? Well, I'm here. You know, obviously, I'm here. That's where I am. And then you ask people a bit deeper. Well, where exactly are you? When you say I'm here, I mean, my body is here, you know, sitting on a chair. Yes. But go deeper. Where are you? Where are you? That sense of being that's always there, that sense of I am. Where is that? And people will usually say, well, it's in my head. And, you know, that's where I am experiencing the world. I I am in my head. And that would seem to make sense because the brain is in the head. So obviously the brain is in the head. So my sense of I comes from the brain. It's in the head. That's what we normally think. But what I see happening is actually something a little different. Where we place ourselves at the center of our experience. And just to go back a little bit, go back to the knowing thing. Every experience I have, whatever it is, the world out there, my inner world, is all, in a way, created by the brain. The brain is processing information and forming a picture of the world for me. And so you know, even now, what I see around me, the brain is taking in information through the eyes and through the ears, and it's creating this picture of the world. And that is the activity, that is the ripples in knowing, if you like, what I am experiencing, what has the brain created. And then I place myself at the center of that image. So I place myself at the center of this world I'm seeing. And I'm not talking about the physical self, I'm talking about I, the I am. And the center of my world is somewhere behind my eyes because I'm seeing the world and between my ears, eyes and ears, the most dominant sense of location, particularly the eyes. So I place my sense of being at the center of the world I am seeing. But now, now do an interesting thought experiment. Imagine your eyes were transferred down to your knees, say, or your hips, and your ears were transferred down there. And you now go through the world with your eyes Three foot lower, your ears three foot lower, where would you experience yourself to be? And you would still experience yourself to be where your eyes and ears are, because that is the center of the world you are seeing. And so that brings out the fact it is nothing to do with where the brain is. That center where I am is actually the center of the world we are seeing. And you can actually do this experiment in a way now, not by transplanting the eyes and ears. But with virtual reality, it's actually a technique called telepresence. So they've done these experiments where you give people a virtual reality headset. You know, so they've got video coming in from somewhere else. They've got sound coming in. And you connect the virtual reality headset to a robot in another room where you've got video cameras, you've got microphones set up you know, around a dummy head. And so all your experience is coming from another room. And after about two or three minutes, People feel themselves to be in the other room. They actually experience themselves being in the other room. And I find that fascinating. But it just shows that where I am, where I, and again, where I, my sense of being is, is nothing to do with the physical body. And in fact, the whole thing is sort of inside out. Because the whole world I experience, all of it, is something appearing, in my knowing, in my consciousness, and then I take the I that is the knowing and place it inside my field of knowing. It's like it's like I create this experience and then put myself in the middle of it. It's a bit like you, know, you see a map of somewhere, you know, some trail or somewhere. There's an arrow saying, you are here. And it points to you are here at the center of the map. And that's in the same way what is happening here. We have this map of the world and then we place ourselves in the center of the map but it's still it's still part of the world we created so it's just to bring home the point really that all of our experience is occurring in this field of knowing and that field of knowing is what we call i so coming back to the sense of you know what do we mean by i what we really mean when you look down deep is The fact that I am aware, that I am experiencing, that I am knowing this. So it's almost synonymous when you look down to it. I is really the label we give to being aware. That's probably the best way to put it.
0: Mm -hmm. You present this notion of free will instead of um, free won't instead of free will, which you refer to as freedom from the will of the ego mind. And the freedom to choose not to choose, or choosing nothing instead of choosing something. Sort of like the Taoist concept of Wu Wei versus Yu Wei.
1: Yes. Usually, when people talk about free will, or even freedom, we talk about freedom to do something. You know, and free will is often talked about, you know, I have the will to choose. What I want to do, I have free will. And there's a whole debate there about you know, whether or not we truly have free will, etc., or whether it's all predetermined. But I'm just saying, whether or not you know, we have free will in the sense freedom to do something, and we talk about freedom, you know, the freedom to say what we want, the freedom to choose, we talk about social freedoms. But there's another sense of freedom, which is not freedom to, which is freedom from. And so what I'm talking about here is freedom from the ego mind, that egoic way of thinking. Freedom, freedom from certain ways of seeing things. And it's really freedom from getting caught up in that unnecessary thinking, that unnecessary planning, whatever it is, that's creating emotions that are not really suitable. And there, I think we do have a choice. And that's what I call free won't. It's free won't because it's the choice not to go somewhere in our thinking. So when I notice I'm going off on some tangent and beginning to think about something or worry about or plan something that's obviously you know not really that important or just going to disturb me, I have the freedom, I choose, I just say to myself, I won't go there. That's what I mean by free won't. I'm free in the moment to choose not to follow that thought any further. So that for me is free won't. Just freedom not to go there. I won't. I don't need to go there anymore. So I just won't go there anymore. It may come back. But in that moment of just exercising free won't, I'm not only stepping out of that thinking, which may just cause more tension, etc. I'm diffusing things because... If I followed on with the thinking, I may end up you know, doing something or saying something which I then you know, later regret or have to deal with the tensions in my mind. So I'm actually creating more freedom in my life because I'm freeing myself from my egoic thinking. So that's what I mean by free will. It's a different sort of choice. And I think whether or not we have free will in the outer world, I say that's an ongoing debate, I believe, We all have free won't. We all have that ability just to say, right now, I'm not going to go there in my thought. I won't go there. And that, I find, just allows me to come back to my being, coming back to being present. Mm -hmm.
0: I would love for you to talk about synchronicity or the way you phrase it as the support of nature.
1: Yes. Actually, it isn't the way I phrased it so much. It was the way one of my very early teachers of meditation, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the founder of Transcendental Meditation, and I studied with him back in the 60s and 70s. And he had this term, nature support. And it was interesting. Whenever he was asking how we were doing in our meditation, you know, he was interested in whether experiencing greater quietness and more of that sense of self, etc., but one question he always kept coming back to, he said, Do you experience greater support of nature? By which he meant, Are we noticing that the world seems to, nature seems to support us, the world seems to provide the right things as we need them? And it's what today, you know, most of us talk about as synchronicity. You know, I am, you know, whatever it is, I'm walking down the street and. know suddenly get drawn into a bookstore and the perfect book is there looking at me and it's just what i need or i meet somebody and they tell me something things little things that change our lives in some way or in some big way so he was really saying as a result of meditation are you noticing increased synchronicity in your life now that's something I think a lot of meditators do experience. I know when I've been on a meditation retreat, when I'm really calm and centered, it's like the world is almost magically there for me. Now, his argument was absolutely fascinating to me. And I haven't heard any other teacher put it this way. He said, when we meditate, we're stepping back from the thinking mind and we're stepping back from our ego, our ego mind. And he was saying, it's our ego mind that is creating so many problems in the world, whether it's wanting power, success, money, manipulating things, but nearly every problem in the world in one way or another comes back to human thinking, and particularly to that sort of self-centered thinking of what I want. That's the root of many of our problems. So he said, by meditating, you are supporting nature in the most fundamental way possible. I mean, there's many ways we can support nature in doing things and, you know, green policies, etc. But by stepping out of the ego mind that is the root of so many problems, you are supporting nature in the most fundamental way you can. And then he said, and nature returns the favor. And that, you know, it sounds a bit like magical thinking, but that was the way he put it. Nature returns the favor and we start experiencing increased Synchronicity, increased things going just right as we want them. And as I found it a fascinating teaching, also something that, although it sounds a bit woo-woo, I found very, very true in my life. And the conclusion I point to in the book is that means we can actually encourage synchronicity in our life. Of course, we can't make synchronicity happen. The very nature of synchronicity is things happening by coincidence so we can't make it happen, but we can encourage it by the more we can come back to ourselves, come back to our center, the more we can step out of the ego mind, the more we are allowing synchronicity to come to us. And the more in touch I am with myself, the more it seems to happen.
0: So it sounds like we're aligning ourselves with nature.
1: Yes, that's another nice way of putting it. We're aligning ourselves with nature, a lot of us do that in terms of the outer world, but we're aligning ourselves with nature inside. Right. We're aligning ourselves right. with the natural flow of life inside ourselves, inside our mind, in our consciousness, by removing those things that take us out of alignment.
0: Right. Nature in the, in the broadest sense. Yes. Which yes. includes us, who we most truly are.
1: Yes. Nature in this sense is not just nice green grass and trees. <laughs> it's it's, it, it's it's the cosmos. It's how things are. Yeah, and we are part of that. We are part of nature. Part of everything is part of the, the world in that sense, the natural world.
0: Mm-hmm. And this may relate to the final question I want to ask you about, and that is letting go into the future, particularly in relation to these times of existential crises that we're facing.
1: Yes. Yes. Ah. Uh, you 're right there's going to be more crises on the horizon and the pace of change is accelerating I think things are going to go faster and we are going to be faced with many challenges in this way we're going to need to be more creative in our response maybe let go of some of our past attachments as to how things should be we're going to need to maybe deal with some you know upsetting maybe even traumatic experiences or grieving or just unexpected changes, completely unexpected changes happen. And I see all of this is really asking us to develop this skill of letting go so that you know, when something happens we weren't expected, how do we let go of those expectations? Or how do we let go of how we did things in the past where maybe we need a completely new approach? So I see the skill of letting go is going to be increasingly important in the times to come. And that was one of my reasons for writing this book now. It's been sort of on my back burner for a long time, but I just felt, I need to write this book now because we're going to need letting go more than ever. And in the book, I use an analogy of trees in a storm. I mean, we are going to be facing a storm of change, I think. If you look at how trees survive a storm, first of all, they need to be flexible. They need to blow with the wind. So I think we need to be more flexible, which again is letting go of how we think things should be. A tree also needs to be rooted in the ground. It's firmly rooted not to blow over. And that, for me, is that rooting in ourselves, rooting in our own being, in that sense of I am. We need to be more grounded in that. And then, also, you know, trees survive in a community. A tree on its own out in a plain is going to blow over much more easily than a tree in a forest. And so... I see community is also really important, which is about developing caring, compassion. We're all going to need, we need to help each other whenever possible. And that again requires letting go of our grievances, our judgments, our anger. And so I just see, you know, almost however you look at it, the skill of letting go is going to be more and more important in the times to come.
0: Mm. Peter, it's been really wonderful talking with you about all of this. I'm so grateful.
1: Oh, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for all your questions. Really, really enjoyed it.
0: My guest has been Peter Russell. He has degrees in theoretical physics, psychology, and computer science from the University of Cambridge. He studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India, and he's the author of this wonderful new book that we've been talking about letting go of nothing relax your mind and discover the wonder of your true nature That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.